This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back to Almost Heretical. I am so excited because we're starting a new series today called How the Bible Works. And we had a little trouble coming up with that name because we were trying not to name it something that Pete Enns has already used. So we came up with this title and then he came out with a manuscript literally called How the Bible Works for his next book. But it's okay. We're still going to go with it because it's generic enough. But Tim, why does it matter? Why do we need to think about how the Bible works. Isn't it just this? I always like, you know, what I'm thinking about what I used to teach, which was this Bible, just get along with your Bible. You can understand it for yourself. Bible is the words of God that have been handed down. Uh, It's exactly what he wanted people to say. They put it in this thing and now we have it. Like, why does it need to be something different than that? Why do we need to relook at this thing? Like, what's the problem here? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll we'll be answering that question in various uh, pieces along the way. But I guess up front, we've said uh, that the Bible matters, I think, to you and I, Nate, um, because uh, no matter how we feel about it, you know, whether we uh, have been burnt out by the Bible or never really interested in the Bible or uh, are like a diehard inerrantist that spends a couple hours a day reading the Bible— uh, Whatever your relationship is in our world, uh, especially in American culture, uh, the the Bible and what people think it says has a massive impact on society, right? So uh, even if you're disinterested in it yourself, uh, we've said that you know if you care about how <laughs> the world's going, you should be interested in how people interpret this this book. Um, so that's just one practical piece. Uh, but secondarily, you and I have kind of shared some of our story. Um, which I think is uh, largely parallel to how Rachel Held Evans has uh, kind of told her own story and inspired of growing up with the Bible, being inundated uh, with approaching it in particular ways, then becoming totally uh, uncomfortable with much of that and going through a significant deconstruction process. Uh, but then learning there are whole other approaches and uh, there's a whole lot more in the Bible uh, than she was taught and then has come back to sort of a a different uh, appreciation for what it is and what it's trying to do uh, for really uh, for how it works. So uh, my version of that is to say that um, I think specifically answering the question, how does the Bible work is important because those of us that have come from some sort of church or even just broadly Christian background. And I would actually say even uh, secular people in American culture, uh, we have all kind of inherited a sense of what the Bible is for, just based on how the church has treated it, right? And how everyone has watched uh, the church treat it. And uh, and I'll just say like off the bat, I mean, I'm, I'm very nervous to start this <laughs> series. Yeah. Uh, it's a humbling and like nerve wracking thing to even claim that I know an iota about how, how the Bible works. I mean, I'll share, I'm 31 years old. I've been studying, trying to understand how the Bible works for roughly a decade. I guarantee five years from now, I will hate (laughs) the way I articulated certain ideas on this series and I'll disagree. And so we're going to go like walk real humbly and, uh, light-handed or um, open-handed with a lot of our conclusions and a lot of this conversation. But 
we have, I have also in the last several years learned that so much about what I was taught that I was supposed to do with this book uh, is not what the book itself is asking me to do with it. Uh, so much of what I had been led to believe about how the Bible works is not actually how the Bible works. And so much of what I've seen has actually led me to a new, beautiful, deeper, richer appreciation for the Bible uh, that, you know, we're not out here like evangelists for the Bible, really. Like if you if you don't care about this thing, like our, our goal is not to like convince you you need to care about this thing. My guess, though, is that if you're listening, you probably do care. <laughs> like you have some some level of interest uh, and want to to be able to think about uh, this book differently. So, I think that's kind of the goal in the series. Yeah, and I was going to say two things before we jump in. One um, is that yes, it's not going to be like perfect, and we'll probably go like, ah, we should have said this differently in in a few years or whatever. But the reason we we care enough to do this and give it our best shot at the things that we have learned and the way the perspectives that have changed is because, and this comes back to everything we want to do with this show. We see people getting hurt by the way the Bible is being used. And if it was just like, eh, you know, some people have some bad ideas out there and ideas that we used to teach honestly as well. Then we're like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. It's like, but like Tim said, the Bible is still a very powerful book in our culture. And because of that, it can be used to, like Rachel Hold Evans says, it can be used as like a bomb to heal people, not bomb, like B-A-L-M. Bomb. <laughs> um, bomb. Or it can be used as a weapon to hurt people. It's either a and, bomb or a bomb. <laughs> exactly. And so, uh, w- so we care because of the people that are being hurt by that. And the second thing I want to say is I'm not saying at all that I know the motives of the people that are using the Bible to, to hurt people, because I was, I think one of those people for a while, and I had the best motives in the world. I w- I wanted to help people. So we're not even getting into the motives of what or why people are doing that. Um, but I think a lot of it is just these ideas we have, we feel like this is what the Bible has to be. Um, and so we keep perpetuating that for whatever reason, for whatever motives. Um, and so we're hoping to kind of walk through a lot of that so we can process through that so that maybe it doesn't hurt people anymore. Or if you have been hurt, this can help you process through that hurt. And then, so just as a preface, uh, if the question we're asking is how does the Bible work? Uh, the answer to that question could take the next 20 years of podcasts, right? Uh, or into infinitum. So, uh, this is going to be a long series. And I think what we're going to do, you know, we did a, a gender series that was quite long. We still didn't feel like we, uh, we got to half of what we wanted to get to. Um, but we did that series pretty much consecutively. I, this at times will work that way. And at times we'll take a break, jump into some other stuff and then come back and add on to the, how the Bible works series. So this is almost going to be like an ongoing conversation that we jump into, jump out of, uh, that'll take us, I think, well into to next year. So with that, we'd love to gather as much of your feedback, questions, thoughts, your own uh, experiences or stories or or thinking on the subject. Uh, and we're also going to try to answer some of the questions that we've been gathering over the past couple months that you all have been sending in and uh, letting those questions really dictate kind of where we go and what parts of this conversation we focus on. So uh, probably the best chance we have to let your questions shape uh, the podcast conversation. Okay, so where where should we start here? Seems like there's a lot to kind of get to. 
um, yeah, where do you feel like we should kick this off? Well, I've got a thought, but I guess, I mean, so I sent you some, uh, some notes. The I know you perused through at least. Yes. Uh, where do you want to start? <laughs> this question by uh, Brandon Rice, who emailed in, listener of the show. Hi, Brandon. Uh, he said, I've been doubting lately the perfection, quote-unquote perfection of the Bible. I mean, how can all of God really be within a book in text? It's God after all. Is the Bible all there is when it comes to ultimate truth? And then this question here, is it fully divine if written by humans were the humans writing exactly what God wanted? And uh, I, I don't know. I just feel like that's a such a common question. And I feel like if you challenge that and say, it's like this human written slash God inspired spectrum that everyone kind of has to peg where they fall on that line. And if you say like, it's, it's, it's like human written, then you're saying, you know, you don't believe in the authority of God and that he couldn't put his ideas into a book and that, you know, creation's not real and all this, like all this stuff. And then if you say like, it's, it's just God inspiring this book, then it's basically comes down to these like tablets from heaven. He gave the exact rule for everything in this thing. And anyways, I don't know. I just feel like that's such a common question or thought people have. And maybe we could start there. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, th- I think, uh, you're right. That question is something, I don't know. I feel like it's just been constantly reverberating f- within any circles that have any connection with, uh, evangelical Christianity or even just modern Protestant Christianity. Uh, because in large part, the last, I don't know, hundred years, in uh, in Western Christianity has inserted a couple ideas uh, about the Bible, such as inerrancy, that the Bible is incapable of, of being wrong or having any contradiction or having any uh, error in it. Um, that got inserted into our thinking on how the Bible works and what we're supposed to do with it. And then everything's been built on top of that. And, uh, and so thousands and thousands and thousands of people have <laughs> struggled with all the questions that come up related to science and historical accounts and archaeology and what to do with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Like, there's just a litany of problems with that uh, idea, and yet that's been placed as the foundation. Like, everything we've been taught, what we're supposed to do with the Bible has been built on that foundation. And... Uh, at some point, it leads to, uh, for a lot of us, I think, either a breaking point where you realize that the idea just cannot hold. It will not hold water under scientific scrutiny, under the facts. Uh, or you go, I will die on that hill, and I'm going to defend uh, that view of the Bible no matter what scientific discoveries are ever made, no matter what we learn about uh, the universe, no matter what we dig out of the ground in the Middle East. And so you just have these like polarizing worlds where I think the topic of like (laughs) how the Bible works is actually an incredibly triggering topic for a lot of people on both sides of the spectrum, probably. Um, And so what we're going to kind of explore in this, uh, in the series is that Like, there's no chapter in any one of the books in the Bible that's like, hey, here's what this thing is, and here's uh, here's what to do with it. Like, there's no user manual with the thing. Uh, But there actually are a lot of clues within the text and clues that were intentionally placed within the text on what is happening in the texts. And 
Okay, okay, Tim, Tim. So if let me just interrupt. If you were on an elevator with someone and they had no clue what this book was and you were going to hand it to them so that they could read it for the first time, what would you tell them that it is and what kind of warning or caution would you give them about this thing? Okay. El- your elevator pitch for the Bible. All metaphors break down and they all break down with the Bible. I personally believe that the best analogy for what the Bible is, is a mosaic. And specifically, I think the Bible is a literary theological mosaic, especially the the Old Testament or the the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, uh, I believe are a, a literary mosaic of other texts that have been arranged together kind of like a, a library or an anthology of texts. But I think the mosaic picture uh, is a better metaphor in the sense that they've been placed next to each other and specific and intentional and ingenious uh, patterns and arrangements to create an overall narrative literary portrait. And what we'll explore in uh, some future episodes is that the Hebrew Bible's primary portrait that it's trying to uh, depict is is actually a Jewish messianic expectation of a hero figure who would not be found within the stories of the Hebrew Bible, but would have to be found outside and beyond uh, the Hebrew Bible. And that is how Jesus was able to say that the entire Hebrew Bible was a story Uh, that was pointing forward to him, which he was the fulfillment of. And so ironically, actually, this is now, you know, the people are getting off the elevator and this (laughs) is me like standing alone, reflecting on my life. (laughs) Ironically, that sounds sounds similar to where I started my journey with the Bible. But then I I left that and I got so... So for instance, I... uh, came to faith, one of the first books I read was uh, Lee Strobel's A Case for Faith. Case for Christ. Yep. Or Case for Christ. So then I think Case for Faith was the second one. So the first one, A Case for Christ, was uh, <laughs> it was literally just a list of everything that could be considered a prophecy in the Old Testament. And prophecy here meant a prediction of something to happen in the future. And then running through checking off all the ways that Jesus uh, fulfilled these predictions. And I remember reading that. I actually handed it to my grandma. I'm still embarrassed about this. Uh, and, and told her to read it because she wasn't and still isn't very interested in Christianity. I don't think... Part of that is probably my fault because that's the book I handed her. Uh, <laughs> sorry, grandma. She's also not interested in podcasts, so I know she didn't hear that. Um this, <laughs> the elevator is now too too far down in the basement of my life. You have another guest now. You're going up with them now. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Other people are listening to my reflections. You just keep going up and down the elevator picking up a new a new target. Uh okay, so here's so I bring that up because uh at first I was really captivated by that. I'm like, "Oh yeah, Jesus is like magically fulfilled all of these things, right? Like the Old Testament was this like divine message like the drop down out of heaven and 
everyone just waited around for hundreds or thousands of years for someone. And it happened to be right about all these. Things. Yeah. And Jesus is yeah. the one that, it, that, uh, that all of these were predicting. And, uh, and then I start, you know, studying the Bible and reading the old Testament. And eventually I just got to the point where I'm like, that is BS. And, and not just like, uh, intellectually BS, but it was offensive to, to whittle the Old Testament and the Jewish people and this literature down to that, to proof text, basically. And I got really sick of the proof texting. And, uh, and then I, I basically started swimming in historical critical scholarship, uh, which is largely based on <laughs> undermining that kind of usage of the text. So then I started just trying to read the Hebrew Bible and Old Testament as if uh, it was just literature that was kind of historical in nature. Each text was its own story. You know, I remember thinking like, don't read the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs as if it's like messianic. That's crazy. Just read it as this love poem. Uh, and and then further on in my studies, I started seeing other pieces that are going, actually, I think what's happening uh, is that these texts, for instance, the Song of Solomon, was itself just an erotic love poem. But but why was it ever placed in the canon of the Tanakh and why was it placed where it was placed? And starting to realize, actually, I think it was placed there to be a part of this messianic uh, mosaic portraiture, but not in a kind of predictive proof texting sense, in a really complicated literary sense. Uh, and that's where I think the uh, the mosaic metaphor w- works really well, and we'll explore it, is that basically what you have in the Hebrew scriptures is a collection of very different kinds of literature. You have poems, you have some really old poems, you have some uh, newer poems where literally the the variety of the Hebrew language is like generations uh, different. Uh, you have even different languages. You've got some Aramaic in there. Uh, and then you have narrative, like kind of what we're used to reading in the historical accounts. Then you have like weird genealogies. Then you have books of law. Then you have uh, songs, basically, uh, or poetic songs. Like how do these things all fit together? And uh, and I think what I've come to terms with is actually there was a, a large effort, and this is kind of a trigger word for people, there was a large redaction or editing or arranging effort that was taking a bunch of texts and fitting them together, placing them next to each other, uh, kind of like a montage in a in a movie, you know, like the the famous Rocky montage or like the first the first two minutes of Up, which is like two of the best oh, minutes yeah. of film history, um, where you're just placing a bunch of stuff next to each other that. Uh, that create a picture. I, I kind of, when you said mosaic, I pictured like those beautiful like tile works where they'll take a bunch of different scraps of tiles. Let's just picture like those little, I don't even know what they are. They're like five inch by five inch tiles or whatever, where someone would maybe, I remember doing this like in grade school, like painting some picture or something like that, some scape on this like little five by five inch tile. And everyone did that in the class. And um, and let's just say like a bunch of schools do that. And let's just say like a bunch of schools for like uh, over like thousands of years do that. And then you, you almost like drop all of those and break them all up and get all these little pieces from all of those tiles 
And then I say like, I'm going to create this, this piece and I'm going to, uh, I want to make this tree and I'm going to use these dark shades from some of these tiles that I found and put them up there. The original intention of that tile that that kid painted was uh, a mountain maybe, or, or something completely different. But when put in this mosaic, it is now um, a little mountain piece of a mountain, but making up this tree, which is my work of art that I'm trying to make here. And so the, the intention um, was maybe different. And if I, if I like zoom in and I'm like, okay, what is this? What was the original piece here? It's not that bad to do. And you're like, okay, I think this was a mountain. This was clearly a mountain. Um, that's really helpful to see like, oh, this is like a, this is the right hand side of like a, a mountain scape that someone drew. But if I only see that and I don't see that this is now a branch in this tree, then I've not um, done justice to the, the bigger piece of art that's going on here. And I've just kind of zoomed in on the little piece of art that's going on. And so I kind of, when I think of the Bible, I think of um, kind of what you're saying is a, a large part of the, the work in making what the Bible actually is was done in this, I mean, editing is such a like controversial word and redacting is probably even more controversial, but this kind of uh, clipping and, and framing and positioning and, and putting of all these pieces in this thing to, to, to tell this like grand narrative of, of what it was trying to tell. And so if I zoom in on the, uh, the laws in the old Testament, I'm trying to figure out like, okay, which ones of these still apply to me? Which ones of these were like, um, you know, done away with in the old Testament and don't apply anymore. And is it only if Jesus referenced it in the new Testament and like what, you know, then I might be missing the whole point of like, why was Israel given these laws and what was going on there? And what are they trying to tell me? And, and I think the fear is that the Bible becomes, I get it. I get the words of like, editing and redacting and crafting and um, it sounds very very human and I think the fear is that the Bible just becomes another special good book that we like along with a bunch of other books and it, it misses being this divine book from God and that makes it less special and what I've where I've kind of come to is I think the Bible is way more special when you read it this way and you see it this way. And it's actually something I want to hold on to and I want to appreciate and and use in my life now um, when I view it this way. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts.
so the way you described uh, a mosaic and how it can be, you know, if the overall picture uh, in your example is a tree, right? And, uh, and one piece that one, you know, kid painted was a mountain and say the mountain fits the right color to be used as like one piece of uh, bark in the overall picture of the tree, then if you, if you get up close, you know, say it's a full wall, uh, and you're staring at that one tile that's a picture of a mountain, you can appreciate that mountain tile, that five by five inch piece for what it depicts, what it might mean. But you cannot claim that the author or the overall mosaic means anything to do with what that piece means, right? If the piece is trying to, to show you a picture of a tree <laughs> and, or present a scene of a tree, then you see what the piece is trying to do by stepping back several steps and taking in the thing as a whole. Mm -hmm. To mix metaphors here, we're going to uh, reference a lot in this series uh, a, f a friend and uh, my favorite Bible scholar out there, a guy named Tim Mackey, who's uh, out here in Oregon, uh, in Portland. Uh, he runs the Bible Project, uh, and we'll probably share some more info there. But he uses a very similar metaphor. He uses that of a quilt. And so uh, a kind of I like mosaic a bit better, but I'll borrow uh, the, the quilt metaphor for a sec. In a quilt, you know, if you're taking basically similarly, you're taking different little patches of fabric that have different uh, stitches you know, scenes painted or scenes stitched into them. And you've got all these different pieces and then you, you stitch those pieces into one big blanket, right? With mm. say a, a hundred different uh, little pieces on it. Then those original little pieces are preserved. You can go look at them in one, one corner of the quilt, but it's the overall picture, the new overall blanket that is telling you the meaning. So th the reason I bring in that second metaphor is, uh, I guess in a mosaic, you're like gluing or something, right? Which I don't think works very well. In like a grout or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're uh, using putty or something. In a, in a quilt, you're stitching. And I think that metaphor is actually really, really close to what we actually see happen literarily in the scriptures, is texts are stitched together. So, if my theory holds and the, the Bible is like a mosaic, then it isn't each individual piece and the original meaning of each individual piece that actually is telling the message of the Bible as a whole. It's the way they are stitched together and the way that the overall presentation of how they've all been arranged together of what that overall picture uh, shows. So I think we could actually just jump into some examples to kind of show you what I'm talking about. But uh, I want to reference another uh, question that a listener to the show asked uh, a few weeks ago. And it was coming from uh, one of the episodes in the gender series. And Paige uh, Suffolette, I think we've mentioned your name before. We probably botched it then, and I'm probably botching it again. You should just uh, <laughs> email in page with like a pronunciation so we don't mess it up every time. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. You ask great questions. <laughs> 
So Paige's question uh, was pointing out that in the gender series, part of the problem in misreading Paul is that we often take passages where he is describing something happening, describing an issue in the church, describing a reality in the culture of his day, and we just take that as a divine prescription. Uh, and so her question was, uh, what other passages have been written as description, but have been taught to us in a prescriptive way? So I know this is going to sound kind of outlandish, but I actually think the answer is almost the entire thing. Like almost the entire Bible is, in a, in a sense, descriptive. I'll switch out and use the word narrative. As a mosaic, the, the Bible is presenting a story, a narrative story that we have taken as a kind of divine instruction manual. And here, this is true both of Old Testament and New Testament. And so, so much of the solution, I think, that we're going to see to the problems with how the Bible is approached and how the Bible is used is, is trying to see what's happening literarily within these texts. And, and we'll realize <laughs> that in a thousand different ways, the Bible is a, is a work, a collective work or a set of works of literary genius. <laughs> like a mosaic, when I use that metaphor, the way we'll see that the Bible has pieced together different texts, it is mind-blowing. And then to realize that this happened <laughs> thousands of years ago in a nomadic desert culture that didn't have books and was was an almost entirely oral culture mm. is just like totally, <laughs> totally mind-blowing to me. And you actually realize there's nothing, especially the, the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, there's nothing else on par with this that we know of in history in terms of the literary uh, complexity of what's happening here. So I guess we all have to go through our season of being like, but it's, it's just like God's word and he spoke it. And these, you know, the prophets and the writers, they just kind of like let it pass through. Like, if that's where you're at, like, okay, fine. But where I've come to of trying to understand, uh, just setting that kind of way of thinking about things aside and trying to appreciate uh, the human brains uh, that were at work actually very quickly led me back to a actually a, a much higher appreciation for uh, the Bible than I ever had before trying to interpret this thing as kind of like a divine magical gift, uh, you know, like Pandora's box that just like arrives on earth uh, without ever being, uh, you know, truly a work of human uh, creation. And uh, and actually, I think the, the ways we'll point out seeing like seeing what humans were doing to make the Bible possible and to make the Bible exist, I actually think has given me <laughs> uh, a renewed sense of hope in humanity. I honestly don't think that's too big of a statement. Uh, it's inspiring uh, to see what's happening here and, and basically sets us on a whole new journey where like I'll spend the rest of my lifetime exploring some of the intricacies of what's going on in these texts and I'll never get to the bottom of it. 
And that to me is, is a, a journey that's worthwhile and fun as compared to, let me just get the basic bullet point structure of, of God's prescriptions for the world and for how I have to live and for what rules I have to obey and for what doctrines I have to believe. And, and if I just, you know, if I can get that prescription down, then life will go well. <laughs> like that idea just doesn't hold and it's not very compelling, at least not for very long. And so I actually, as we jump into this series, I'm like more excited. I can feel it in my body, right? Because uh, the stuff we're going to explore is, it's fun. Like it, it, uh, it piques my curiosity in a way that approaching the Bible strictly as a kind of religious text, which is a set of of access to doctrine points, uh, it just doesn't doesn't do that for me. Don't you think that, and I want to get to the examples here, and maybe this isn't even going to be included in the show. I don't know. But don't you think that it's it's scary to think about the Bible in a different way because what if it is the other thing you mentioned that we used to think it was and it is telling us the doctrine we need to have in order to go to heaven and not go to hell? Then it's not just like people want to hold on to that because they're like comfortable with it and used to it. That's I think at the root of what it is, but like I think it's because we're talking about eternal destination here and people feel like if I change that, I know that's what I used to think. Like that's cool. But like this is too much is writing on this to rethink what the Bible is at this point. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to make, uh, make light of the emotional (laughs) baggage that we all feel. Religious texts carry incredible weight. I mean, talk to a Muslim about, you know, changing the way they think about the Quran or try to talk to a Mormon about changing the way they view the Book of Mormon. And honestly, I mean, talk to a conservative, patriotic, nationalist American about changing the way they view the U.S. Constitution. Uh, We live in a text-based world. It wasn't always this way, but it is now. Uh, We live in a text-based world where all claims to religious authority are rooted in some petition to a text. And, and that's true of Christianity. It's true of Judaism. It's, it's true of, of most of religion. I think when you get to like tribal, some tribal religions and tribal like spiritual experiences, it's not that way, but yeah, I think pretty much, but that's because they didn't go text-based, you know, they, they stayed before the text-based stuff probably. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, this is venturing off into a different conversation. Yeah, yeah. I think you could make a strong case uh, that in, in large part, the success, and I, I don't like that word, but the the spread, the popularity of the Judeo-Christian and uh, include Islam in that mix of the, the Abrahamic religions is that they've been built on a, a fascinating, complex, and rich set of texts that has been compelling and has been something that people could point to uh, that's, that's been given a lot of weight uh, culturally. And so, I mean, we're, we're standing here th- literally thousands of years atop the foundation of a set of texts or a book as we've construed it. Of course, <laughs> the way people think about that is a sensitive subject, right? And as Christians, you know, people go like hermeneutically in circles and make yourselves crazy all day long because you go like, 
well, how do we interpret the Bible? Well, we interpret it through the lens of Jesus. Okay, well, what do we know about Jesus? We know what the Bible tells us. And you could just run yourself in, in circles, right? So at some point, people like sort of, a lot of us just throw up our hands going, I don't even know. Uh, and then others have just doubled down on various sets of ideas like we talked about inerrancy or, uh, or whatnot. So it is a very sensitive matter. I think people are very slow uh, to change their minds about uh, about stuff like this. Um, I'm, I'm not going to try to change anybody's minds away from a divine tablet view of the Bible. Uh, I'm just going to try to show some of the stuff I've seen that I find really fascinating and, uh, and significant and assume that if you're listening, you want to do the, the thinking that you want to do the work to, to actually discover stuff there. Uh, my, my personal experience is that, uh, what you end up getting to use the Bible for when you view it as, as divine prescription, uh, is pretty lame compared to uh, what role it can play uh, in your life, personally, socially, politically, whatever, uh, when, when you can start to construe it as a massively complicated uh, literary masterpiece. Ignore the loud voices of power and wealth, the Caesars, the Pilots, the Pharisees, empires atrophy and die, tra in the pain of all being, there's love to be doing with your hands and your feet and your voice on your knees. Tra-la. Don't expect resolution, earth-shattering changes for good as you see it, my friend. But trust that your tiny giving of life for the other starts healing and succor. Tra-la. Enough to sustain you and them, both giver and taker in the life of the maker whose rule will never end. Tra-la-la, la-la-la, la-la-la. Hello, my name is Leslie Jogi. I'm a retired high school teacher from Zimbabwe. Just a word on the tralas in the poem. They're ironic to begin with. How easy it is to say just ignore the power structures and just believe that your small acts achieve change for the good. But the tralala at the end rings a note of hope. We tell a different story. It's not just about us, but about us and our maker. A transforming narrative of endless possibility that requires patience and perseverance and each other. Be encouraged. We're going to take a minute to make a couple special announcements, especially for those who listen to the show regularly. We just shared that poem by Leslie, which she sent to us in response to the recent conversation we did with Lisa Sharon Harper. Uh, it's just an awesome example of how many of the listeners to the show have actually been contributing uh, via poetry, blog posts, and various other forms of uh, dialogue with the conversations that we're having on the show. So we just want you guys to know we love that, appreciate it, and we also want to share it. So we've built a contributions page on our website, and we'll be placing links there to various contributions from listeners to Almost Heretical. So feel free to send us any of your stuff, any thoughts, anything you're writing, anything you're working on in relationship to the show. Hey, everyone. We're having a gathering in Portland 
called Almost Heretical Conversations on November 11th and 12th. If you want to have some of these conversations in real life with other people that are also on this journey processing these things, love to see you there. It's gonna be a, it's gonna be a fairly small group and we'll just be meeting at coffee shops and breweries and things like that. It's completely free and you can sign up at almostheretical.com. The last thing is, and this is awkward to talk about it, so we're just gonna do it, is financial support for Almost Heretical. Nate and I started the show back in January, and uh, it's kind of a dream come true that it's actually happening. Like, we're trying to take moments to uh, to be excited, to be uh, celebratory, and appreciate just this cool community that's forming, the feedback we've gotten from people, the people we've connected to, all that we've gotten to learn from both listeners and those we've gotten to have on the show. Um, it's just really cool. And especially, this is... This is a, affirmed for us our theory uh, that this kind of conversation and content uh, is something needed and desired by people, uh, people who have been hurt by the church, people have been uh, hurt by the church's theology. So here's the deal. You listeners have been super generous with us, and we actually now have all of the expenses of the show uh, covered. So that's upkeep on the website, uh, some of the books that I buy to uh, support the research uh, for the different series we do, uh, and all the, the hosting web stuff. Awesome. We can do this. We are basically now producing a podcast at zero financial cost out of our pockets. So... Part of us wants to stop asking <laughs> for money, uh, and part of us wants to admit to you uh, that it's a dream of both of ours to be able to cut back on some of our uh, paid work uh, to be able to put more into this podcast as a vocation. As we shared, we're piloting our first in-person gathering in Portland uh, this coming month. That's just scratching the surface of some of the stuff that we've been dreaming up in terms of doing recovery retreats for those who've suffered from spiritual abuse. would love to do trainings and, uh, and gatherings for people uh, in ministry uh, to think about power and how we use our power. Uh, I've got a couple side projects uh, that I'm working on in terms of writing. We've even had uh, some dreams of doing uh, maybe a spin-off podcast of uh, some long-form storytelling uh, about uh, spiritual abuse and those who are uh, recovering from church trauma. So we've got tons of stuff we want to do. Uh, we can keep going with Almost Heretical as is, uh, but if you would like to help us give more of our uh, time and lives uh, to investing in this project and the community that's developing around this project. Uh, we invite you to do that, and we would be super honored and grateful uh, with any of that support. Nate, how awkward do you feel right now? I don't even see you on camera. I'm back. Uh, yeah, it just, feel, <laughs> it just feels weird because we hate asking for money, but and I hate I always skip the shows that do. But, um, yeah, we, we want to pour even more of our, our hearts into this and our time into this. And we have so many ideas and it's just literally a matter of time and freeing up our time to be able to do more of that. So if you do want to give, super grateful of you partnering with the show, you can do that at almostheretical.com slash give or just find us on Patreon. Back to the show. So two big examples uh, within the Hebrew scriptures that I think actually serve as sort of microcosms for what the entire Hebrew Bible is. And the first one is uh, the Torah and Leviticus uh, specifically. Again, this is an example of what we've taken as prescriptive, yet the Bible is presenting as descriptive. So 
I mean, how many <laughs> arguments or discussions have you been in about the Old Testament law and what to do with it and how to make sense of it? It's it's a never-ending conversation, and, and it's massively complex, so I don't want to like be overly reductionistic with this. But one of the most groundbreaking ideas, theologically, in biblical scholarship, I ever came across was from uh, John Salehammer, an Old Testament scholar, who uh, pointed out, <laughs> it now seems so obvious to me, it was so groundbreaking at the time, uh, that the law, as it's presented within the Torah, or the Pentateuch, is not just giving us the law. It's telling a story about the law by including some of the law within the story. The, the book, uh, the groundbreaking one, is called The Pentateuch is Narrative. It, it's, it's that right there in the title is, is literally his case, is that the Pentateuch, which just means uh, the first five books of the Bible, is, is telling a, a story, it's telling a, a narrative arc. And Leviticus, when it's reciting all these laws, right, over 600 of them, and you're reading through, you know, how the priest is supposed to sacrifice an animals and, uh, you know, who is unclean and when they're unclean and how long they wait and how they get uh, back to being ritually clean again and what food you can eat, whatnot. We read those thinking that what the, the book of the law or the, the Torah or the Pentateuch as a book is saying is, here's the law. Everyone who's reading this, go do it. Right. Right? Like, that's what we think the, the book is saying. Or at least we're not sure and we're like, yes, kind of. At least those are good ideas to do. But then let's check with Jesus. Like, did he change anything? He didn't. He didn't change that one. Okay, we need to keep that one. And, you know. Yeah. But all of that question, right, that's coming from a Christian perspective that is assuming that because those laws are included in the Hebrew Bible, they they are active as laws, right? And therefore, we have to ask the question, what did Jesus do with them? Did he get rid of some? Did he make others obsolete? Did he uphold some, right? Instead of we're reading a story about someone getting a law given to them. Ex- yes, exactly. And so part of why we don't see that, is, and we'll get into some of the complexities here, is we actually don't know how to read these kinds of, of texts, right? Uh, we'll get into the the sort of three-dimensional layering of the text. It's, I love this stuff. It's fascinating. The, the book of Leviticus and the book of the law or the, the Torah, the five books, is literally in the, in the literary shape of a, of a mountain where the, the center of it is the consecration of the tabernacle and the the day of atonement like literary literarily structurally there is shape to these texts to the way they've been compiled and arranged and we'll like genealogies poems are used as these like stitching pieces uh to create these these uh grids to them so various scholars have gone through and they've like tried to visualize this for us so basically i'm saying we need to back up and (laughs) and say you know, what's the difference between reading the Pentateuch as a set of texts that that a chunk of it, a large chunk of it, is giving us laws versus a set of texts telling a story 
which includes laws and a story about laws. So, for example, and we'll touch on this real quickly, uh, you remember the story of uh, in Leviticus of Nadab and Abihu, uh, these priest dudes who, uh, <laughs> who go to make a sacrifice, and it says they used uh, unauthorized fire. Uh, they use the, the wrong. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they get. I always get them confused with the ones who touch the ark or Ooh, the guy yeah. who touches the ark. But yeah. 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 yeah actually, it, it's good job, Nate, actually being confused about that because you're supposed to be confusing those two stories together. We'll touch on that in a second. But okay. So within Leviticus, you're like reading all these laws, right? It's like where everybody always drops their like year long Bible reading plan. Guilty. I've been there. Uh, I've stopped there before. <laughs> So you're just reading through and you're like trying to make sense of it. It's like weird religious-y words and like sacrifices. And then you're like, what's the point? But it's God's word. So I'm going to read it anyway. And then you get to this story. All of a sudden you're like done reading laws and you read a story. It's like, oh yeah, there are these priests. And they went up and they offered unauthorized fire and God killed them for it. And, (laughs) And then that story finishes out. And then you get back into a bunch of laws. Well, how the heck do you make sense of either that story or the laws? Well, part of it is that the laws that we just read through are giving you the context of what Nadab and Abihu were supposed to do when they offered their sacrifice. And it's explaining why what they did was wrong or unauthorized. The story, the vignette, and the laws are working in tandem. If you just have that strange story about the dudes getting fried at the altar without the context of what they were supposed to be doing, the laws that they were supposed to be putting into practice. These are laws for instituting the tabernacle. Then you don't understand what's happening here. It doesn't make any sense narratively, and it doesn't make any uh, significant theological sense. Outside of what I think a lot of people have used that for, the touching of the ark for, and maybe we can get to Ananias and Sapphira later, but of uh, causing a fear of God in you. That's how I often used it at the church that I planted was this is supposed to explain that there's supposed to be this fear of God that you're supposed to have. Anyways, I think there is a little bit of a theological thing people use there, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we can talk about whether that's the right meaning to take away. Right. But the, my point here is that the meaning of those chapters of laws is not separate from the meaning of that story. The reason they've been arranged next to each other, that you can just be reading laws, then you read this strange story, and then you're reading more laws, and then more strange story, and more laws, and then more strange story. These have been intentionally placed next to each other so so that the laws are actually performing narrative. The Those strange books of, or those strange chapters that seem like we're supposed to like put them on our wall like our divine commandments, are actually functioning as literary pieces of the mosaic, hmm. right? So the that narrative story, of course, can function as a story, but it too is a piece of a larger mosaic. So I think this is where we just have to learn, relearn, retrain our brain that poems, for instance, throughout the Pentateuch are spliced in between narrative as ways of connecting different stories and giving meaning to the connection and how they're and why they're being placed next to each other. So we often get confused of like, you'll be reading a story, say about the Exodus and you're reading uh, narrative chapters. And then all of a sudden there's a poem or, you know, like Moses's song. 
uh, and then you read some more stuff, and then all of a sudden there's like uh, <laughs> Balaam, that weird guy, and the donkey, and then there's like these poems. What we have to retrain ourselves is to, to see that that different kinds of literature can actually all play a role in presenting an overarching narrative. Hmm. So here's here's example number two, is the book of Psalms. We've been taught that, or actually, let me ask you, Nate. Okay, so how have you thought about, or how were you taught, or how did you teach others of what the Psalms are and what they're for? Um, I think just essentially that they're a songbook for the Hebrew people that was gathered together over the course of many, many years. And they put, they put their favorite ones in there, essentially, um, favorite songs that they, that they sung. Um, yeah, it's a songbook. Yeah, totally. And at a level that's true. Those Psalms or songs were written by people, individuals, probably for various kinds of individual or corporate singing prayer, worship. Some of them seem to be like maybe part of different uh, uh, festivals, actually. But is that why they're there? Is that why we have a, a book of the Psalms? And, and I think I've come to the answer, uh, just a resounding no, that actually those 150 songs have been arranged within little books within the overall book of Psalms that are actually functioning to tell a story from beginning of end to the book of Psalms. Oh, would this be like if someone, you went to like an old, like a store, one of those like scrap stores and you picked up some hymnals and you started like cutting them up and you used those cut up portions of hymnal bits and music and song bits and all that kind of stuff and made like a big piece of art out of it and like I don't even know what it would be a big field of flowers out of these things and like yes you could look in and all the different words and see like oh that was a song about this thing and I'm going to apply that to my life or you could say what was created here and what's the point of what was created and yeah like what's going on if you zoom out yeah totally uh this is uh another metaphor we'll probably use a bunch because uh I think we just need as as many to help us think about this as possible the Psalms, just like these old poems, the genealogies that we see throughout the the pieces of the law. I should point out, when we're talking about Leviticus and the law, one of the points in uh, Salehammer and others' argument is that you can't actually run the temple system on the laws that we have in the Torah. It's not all there. There's clearly missing pieces. These were selective bits that were used. The same is very obviously true of, say, the Psalms or or the book of Proverbs, this isn't like a, a comprehensive collection of every psalm that the Jewish people ever wrote. Right. Rather, each of these little differing kinds of literary text are the ingredients that someone has used to, to scrape together. They are the resources, the, the basic elements that someone has used to, to make something new out of. So it, it's, it's just not the way, you know, we read books and basically top to bottom, left to right text, right? It all follows a chronological order, a beginning to end. Uh, we have been in, formed by book technology, 
one thing we're going to have to do in the series is is try to train ourselves to think outside of book technology because there's not another book like the bible no not that i know of uh there are things again that, that are similar but i mean so so one thing is like some of this was developing pre pre literary culture but then uh, the literature of the Bible was in scroll technology, which uh, we'll get into some of the details, just had to be construed very differently. People didn't own a personal Bible to go home. People didn't own the texts that make up the Bible. Uh, they, were, they were very expensive. They had to be preserved by scribes. They're, they're precious. And so most people didn't have access to them. You would have to memorize uh, these texts in your head. So... In a culture where you have a whole set of pieces of text that some scribes in caves and dark closets have access to, and that the general broader culture has various uh, awareness of, of certain pieces of it, those pieces got used as the basic elements, going back to the mosaic thing. They're the little tiles that got picked up. Some of them got broken to make a different shape. Some of them may even have been added to to change the shape and made to fit together uh, in a way that tells a story. So the book of Psalms is story. It's not primarily a songbook. In other words, these are songs and it's a book of songs or prayers, but the point was not to get the reader to, to pray them, even though that's possible. And that may be a point of, of the book of Psalms. And it might be helpful. Sure. But the primary point was to, to arrange them next to each other in an ordering and in a way that would actually tell a story. In other words, it's a narrative made up not just of sentences, right, but of, but of psalms. Uh, and so that actually is just in an, its analogy for what we're seeing throughout the whole, the whole uh, Hebrew scripture, is that you can use pieces of text— like pieces in a in a puzzle and it, it's so hard right because it because we see text and we just think we're supposed to read it at face value yeah it's very difficult for us to think of it uh in terms of a, of a piece in a in a greater uh whole well the deck is stacked against us because like you said we feel like we know what to do when we see text we feel like we know what to do when we see a poem we feel like we know what to, to do when we see a list of laws and so we think we're using the, the tools that we've been spending our, our whole, you know, hundreds of years of Western thought and enlightenment on in the right way. And it's just, you just got to approach the Bible differently. And the reason I say the Bible is that there's no book like this. I say that to, um, to tell you that I, we do think this is special. We do think the Bible is special and we do think it's really important because there's not a book like this, because there are a lot of books that claim to be, divinely inspired by God. That's actually not special. <laughs> if, if you're claiming that your book is divinely inspired by God, what is special? And this is where I, this is where I'm still interested in the Bible. And I'm actually more interested than I ever have been before. When thousands of people over the course of history put so much time and energy and spend their lives preserving and uh, editing and crafting this thing in a certain way and keeping it going. It's it's this huge tradition that is kept going because people thought this is important and we need to do it. The We need to give it the 
honor that it deserves to go on that journey to pick up those clues and those hints and the trail that is left for us by these people that spent their lives doing this to understand what were they actually trying to communicate in this thing. Yeah, totally. And, you know, so in academic scholarship for the last uh, several decades, uh, what's been called the historical critical approach has has dominated. So some of you may be familiar with what's called the documentary hypothesis. It was really in style for a while. It's still well held uh, within academic circles, although uh, many have pushed back on it for various reasons. But it's basically this. It's scholars have come through the Bible and they've seen evidence after evidence after evidence that this thing is kind of like a mosaic. Like there are different pieces from different places with different writing styles that are, that are next to each other. And some of them even contradict. <laughs> like there are differing stories of David uh, within the same book. And it seems like there are two different accounts of how many animals God told Noah to bring on the ark in Genesis 6 and Genesis 7. And so scholars have noticed this, and then they've they've gone to try to understand, okay, where did the different pieces come from? Where did the different original sources come from? And who wrote them and what was their uh, vendetta or what was their angle? And so you can literally, uh, I've got one on my desk, you can get an entire copy of the Old Testament color-coded for where every verse, uh, which source it's thought to come from, which of four sources. Hmm. But, but here's what that's missing. It's pointing out important things, right? Which the conservative wing of scholarship has tried to just, it's scared of that. It's intimidated by that. So it tries to cover up all of those, you know, so-called issues. Uh, but I don't think either of, of these takes are very helpful or, or necessary. And I actually think they're missing the point, right? Which is what I'm saying is that uh, I think the the underlying assumption within this uh, documentary hypothesis world is that it was sort of accidental or almost stupid the way these texts came to be arranged together. And so what you get often, uh, it's not hard to find on the internet, is people that really don't like uh, religion or this religious text or dumb religious uses of this text and they'll go look genesis 6 genesis 7 contradict genesis 1 and genesis 2 contradict this thing's rubbish you can't even trust it on page two but what that's missing is saying like don't you don't you think these people were smart enough to know that genesis 1 and genesis 2 contradict each other like don't you think if they were trying to cover their tracks the very the very first chapters of the thing that you're putting out there into the world. Yeah. Exactly. It's kind of like uh, in Proverbs, right? You have the line of don't don't answer a fool according to his folly and then right next to it is answer a fool according to his folly. It's like if the if the authors thought those were contradictions, like errors that needed to be dealt with. You would hide them better than that. 
you would at least put them a couple pages apart, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it's actually drawing attention to the fact that those those texts are in contradiction. So uh, this again stealing uh, a line from from Tim Mackey, but there there are signs of intelligent design, and the the deeper I go, the more I study. It's ingenious. <laughs> hmm. There are there are clues everywhere of absolute genius uh, in in how these texts were arranged and why, and and so part of that is we'll we'll find some of these clues, and I think what we'll see, and this is where where people feel really challenged by biblical scholarship, is it challenges the mythical views of authorship, right? You, you, we all know a lot of people who think that believing that Moses wrote the Pentateuch is essential to Christian doctrine. <laughs> and what we'll just find is that the Bible is not making that claim. And actually the Bible has intentionally left clues uh, to say otherwise. For instance, the last chapter of Deuteronomy, speaking of Moses in the third person, saying he's the most humble person <laughs> who's ever lived, right? Which would be really awkward if, if he wrote it. Uh, there are clues everywhere that actually the entire uh, body of texts that have been put into this kind of uh, mosaic anthology or library, and now t for us, we see in a book, right, have been bound together in a book, was put together either by an individual or a group who was living at the end of, of the time within which these texts were written and within the the end of the story which these texts were telling aka post exile uh these were people living uh had lived through the assyrian exile the babylonian exile had lived through the return the partial return to jerusalem and were now living under the the greek and soon to be roman uh, oppression that leads up to you know the time of jesus where where the roman empire has taken over uh, the middle east and you have people who have essentially gathered these texts together. This is where I use the word redacted. They have chosen to use some and not others. They've actually cut pieces of some and not others. Uh, and they've likely added pieces. For instance, many scholars think that all of Genesis 1 through 11 is, is added uh, to the Torah, to Genesis uh, as a kind of preface or introduction added later. And what we'll see is it was added as a kind of key <laughs> that helps make sense of everything that's going to happen. Um, and pieces added to fit things together. We'll look at seams and stitches and where the texts kind of are, are grouped together is, is possibly where some of these additions were made. But most likely what the evidence will show is that this was done by some post-exilic readers who were bundling these texts together in a way that they knew because they were living in a state of, of continued oppression as basically refugees in their own land under one empire after another. They knew that the solution to their problems could not be found in the history that was included within these texts. M meaning... <laughs> The, the story that these texts told, right, the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt, the story of the patriarchs, the story of the time of the judges, and then the, the monarchy, and the fall of the monarchy, and the divided empire, and the time of the exile, 
the answer to their problems couldn't be found there because they had already lived beyond all of that and stuff still sucked. Hmm. <laughs> and so I think what we'll see, and this is, and this is where we'll get into the messianic stuff. What happens is they, they bundle this stuff together to take all of those pieces of, of literary, uh, testimony to Israel's story, their long tumultuous story, and they bundle it up in a way that actually is asking us readers to look beyond that story into the future uh, for resolution to this oppression. So literally the, the last verse, the last sentence of the Tanakh, uh, so in the, in the ordering uh, of the Jewish Bible, uh, it's the book of Chronicles. That's at the end. And the last line is, is literally a cutoff sentence <laughs> mm. that suggests someone is going to come up to the temple in Jerusalem, going to uh, come up to basically take uh, Israel's place where they belong. And it's kind of like an ellipsis, like a dot, dot, dot of like, who is that someone? Uh, what we'll see is there are like literary pieces like that along the way that are trying to get us to, to look forward it's in, in such a way that the entire collection of fragments of literature has created this mosaic portrait, like I said, that Jesus could look at and say, that literary craftsmanship, you know, that whole a mural the size of a wall mm. that's compiled of various pieces of literature yeah. that span 2000 years. That's how that thing was pointing to me. It's not pointing to me because some guy went into a trance and wrote a prediction with a date, you know, and the like color of his clothes and like, and, and Jesus is magically fulfilling these kind of magical uh, oracles. That is not, what he's saying. He's saying this is a this is a literary story pointing to various conclusions. And that story and those conclusions is what Jesus is stepping into. So then what we'll look at is basically that the New Testament writers, along with Jesus, and, and I think there's evidence that Paul basically had to go back and do his homework, right? <laughs> Before he, he could make sense of this. And the disciples on the road to Emmaus had to go back and says, Jesus walked them through the scriptures to show that everything uh, through the Old Testament, everything through the, the law and the prophets was pointing to uh, him. Uh, he had to teach people to read the Bible this way. So ironically, this is where I'm like, you know, people think we're, <laughs> we're almost heretical. Uh, and I, here I'm trying to advocate for us to listen to how Jesus would have taught us uh, to read uh, the Old Testament. Uh, so we'll get into some of that Messianic thing, but it's this almost uh, for us, I think as modern uh, book inundated people, it's we're going to have to learn how to read a text and and not let that text be the, be the, the text, yeah. if that makes sense, right? Like the Psalm isn't the Psalm. It is, but it's also a, a part of a story. Those weird, obscure laws about how to do uh, sacrifices of animals in the tabernacle in the Sinai wilderness are not <laughs> laws for us or for any reader, uh, but are but are chapters in a in a story. So each piece of literature uh, is is a part of the story. So again, to reiterate this, because it. It's, I think it's a pretty massive claim. You can walk up to a mosaic and stare at any individual piece, uh, 
and try to understand what it means and what it's saying and miss the entire point, Hmm. (laughs) right? Like you can stare at the laws and try to understand how they work and miss the entire point. Or you can read that story of Nadab and Abihu and try to understand what, what it means about violence and retribution and God's wrath and miss the entire point because that story and those laws have been put there as, uh, as literary fragments in a, in a mosaic hole. This is the series and we're going to keep doing it. And we think we might do something kind of different and fun with these. What is it, Tim? Yeah. So first piece is we're going to do shorter episodes. Uh, think of them as kind of uh, mini chapters or mini episodes. And we'll try to put a lot of these out, uh, hopefully a couple of week. It, it won't quite be a series. Uh, this will basically almost be like a, a separate side project we have on the podcast. So uh, look out for the How the Bible Works episodes. Yeah, and they're going to kind of feel a little bit different too, but they'll all be on this theme. And they might be mixed in amongst other episodes that we do that are kind of our normal show. But you'll be able to find them all at almostheretical.com slash Bible. Yeah, so consider this first episode as a kind of introduction to us asking the question, uh, how does the Bible even work? We look forward to exploring that question and various levels of depth uh, well into the future. So glad you're with us. If you want to find out more about the show or get in contact with us or share your story or ask any questions, you can go to almostheretical.com. We will see you next time.